Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, December 27th by Pastor Rob Schaff. The sermon isn't part of a series, but it is one of our annual sermons about what discipleship looks like in our church. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about us. Imagine you are on a soccer team where everyone, including your coaches, were completely disinterested in soccer. I actually don't have to imagine that, because when I was in junior high, that pretty much describes the City League soccer team that me and my friends were on. This one game, I was forced to be the goalkeeper because nobody else wanted to, and I guess it was my turn. The other team kicked the ball out beside the net, and so the ball was given to me to kick it back into play, and I kicked the ball to one of our defenders so that he could take it upfield. But he proceeded to turn around and kick the ball as hard as he could back at me, Uh, to score on me, which he did because I was a horrible goalkeeper, and our coach and our whole team thought it was absolutely hilarious. And I remember thinking to myself in that moment, what's the point of this stupid team? Why am I even trying? Moments like that made me so frustrated to be on the team, and participating on that team didn't inspire me to love soccer. Ours was a team of soccer posers, totally disinterested in soccer. And no system or program or cleats or uniforms or cool water bottles could ever compensate for the fact that the culture of that team would never inspire a love of sport. We all get the idea of a toxic environment, either from personal experience or from secondhand stories. We also get what a good environment is, like like we know what it is to want to be a part of something good that's going on somewhere and to find joy in that, right? So from work to recreation, from families and friend groups to our churches, the people involved in those groups create a culture in each of those spheres that can either help people to thrive or cause them to flounder. Now, imagine a church that's like my soccer team, a church that's made up of individuals that don't desire Jesus. No system or program or building will ever compensate for that. The culture that church creates will only demotivate people from desiring Jesus. What would likely happen to a disciple of Jesus in, a, in that church, in a church where no one desires Jesus? When I first stepped into my discipling pastor role here at Sardis Fellowship in September of 2019, <clears throat> I was excited to get to work on how, you know, figuring out how, how discipleship works in our church. What does our church do? What do we do well? What are we all about? How does it all work together to move people towards Jesus? How can we be, all of us, better disciples? How can we all get better at making disciples? Our fellowship in BC here, our denomination, led our staff and our ministry leaders through an exercise where we started developing a metaphor for discipleship that spoke of the church as a river. Church is so much more than a building. It's a people called by God to be disciples of Jesus. By the Holy Spirit's power and leading, the church is a living organism, organizing itself around its God-given purpose to make disciples. Now, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus and invites those who don't know him to follow him also. Discipleship is the process of following Jesus, learning to attach ourselves ever more fully to him, resembling Jesus with an increasing clarity as we draw nearer to him. Discipleship is the job that the church organizes itself to do effectively. It's helpful to think of that journey of discipleship as being a big river flowing towards Jesus with plenty of little streams that feed into it. Some people dive right into the broad river and some people wade into it through a side stream. Some have been in the river a long time and are quite far along, 
whereas others are just starting to get their feet wet. Some are hurting and tired and need a lifeline so that they can catch their breath, and others are swimming as fast as they can along with the current. There are many ways to enter and swim in the Discipleship River, but what's most important is that people are moving downriver towards Jesus. A church-wide discipleship plan assumes that God is drawing people to himself and organizes the following realities. That every person needs to move towards Jesus. That every person is at different stages of discipleship, growing at different rates and in different ways. And that every person will need lifelines no matter how close to Jesus they are. The programs we run and the people we are, the environment we foster and the culture we create, by intent or neglect, will help or hinder disciples in their journey. We want to be a Christ-centered church of disciples making disciples. So how do we organize around these realities? The first step is to ask ourselves, how are we doing? What's going well? What's tricky? And what do we need to be doing differently? Prayerfully ask yourself, where am I in the river and where do I need to go? The narration of this video is taken from the big ideas that our fellowship led us through. My favorite part of their content was this thought. The programs we run and the people we are, the environment we foster and the culture we create by intent or neglect will help or hinder disciples in their journey. I thought a lot about that. By, by intent or neglect, we help or hinder people in their journey towards Jesus by what we do and don't do, by who we are and by who we aren't. And so on December 29th, 2019, I preached a message entitled, 2020 Visions, Seeing Discipleship Clearly. Bad pun, I know. The sermon was about how discipleship always requires disciples to disciple other disciples. In small ways and in big ways, we all need to be brought to Jesus, and we all need to be bringing other people along to Jesus. I discussed how a comprehensive discipleship plan from our church would be a tool that helps people to know what their next best step is in our church as they move towards Jesus. It would help us all to see how discipleship works in our church more clearly. I challenged people to think about who they were bringing to Jesus and said that the comprehensive discipleship plan would eventually be a resource to help you help others take their next step towards Jesus. And in January of 2020, I felt like it was all starting to come into focus. Our ministry leaders were working together to articulate everything that every ministry was up to and to coordinate our efforts and to work together and to figure out a plan to help everyone know what their next steps should be in the life of our church and how to encourage others to take their next steps too. And then COVID hit. And the specifics of our activities and events and the next best step plan that we were working hard to articulate became out of step with the reality of our situation. But even though the planned activities were canceled, it's not like people stopped ministering to each other. Even though we couldn't do the big things we had planned, we could still do the little things with great love. And that's what people did. Ministry leaders got creative, coordinating mailing initiatives and Zoom meetings and phone chains and picnic groups and online Bible studies and a whole lot of ways to encourage each other. Visiting teams figured out how to connect with people. 
leaders figured out how to drop CDs off to our shut-ins. And even though we couldn't meet in person to hear the Word of God preached, we figured out how to post our services online. And Sardis kids came back and moved online, and they made cards, and Carol did a great job getting kids involved and making the videos and drawing the cards and raising more money for the kids in Bolivia than they ever had before. And as time moves on, and as a pandemic restrictions, you know, ebb and flow, we are actually learning how to better minister to each other through such a time as this. Now, don't get me wrong. I miss worshiping with 450 of you, my fellow believers, in person each Sunday morning. I miss seeing your faces. I miss shaking your hands. I miss hearing about what God's been up to in your lives. I miss being encouraged in that way and encouraging others in return. I miss seeing 30 young adults cram into the Peter's living room. I miss the barbecues. I miss the breakfasts. I miss soccer camps and foyer coffee. I miss everything we had laid out on our church river of ministry activity. I miss every opportunity. But we are still a church of Christ-centered disciples who are making disciples. We still want to see people take their next steps towards Jesus. Because no matter what restrictions are placed on building capacity due to a virus, you can always take your next steps towards Jesus. And you can always help someone else do the same. So even when the organization of the church, the activities, the programs, when the organization is disrupted, the organism of the church, the people, and the relationships, and the culture, the organism continues on. We are still a church of Christ-centered disciples who want to see people take their next steps towards Jesus. In my role as discipling pastor, writing out an inventory of our church's activities and making sure they're all pulling in the same direction towards Jesus, that's the easy part. And writing out an inventory of everything our church is up to these days, granted, is a bit trickier um, because we can't think of events and activities the way we used to, but it's still possible, and it's still the easy part of a church-wide comprehensive discipleship plan. The harder part of discipleship in a church is to build a culture where people are moving down the river because they are desperately in love with Jesus and want to please him and be like him where they think and act and behave like Jesus because they desire him above all else. And while ultimately that's the work of the Holy Spirit, you and I and the rest of the church still need to listen carefully to the Holy Spirit's leading and seek to join him in his work. Because by intent or neglect, who we are and the culture we create, we will help or hinder people as they journey towards Jesus. How do we get better at being a church where people desire to take the next steps towards Jesus and want to help others do the same? That's what we're talking about today. In the Gospel of Luke, there are two stories I'd like us to think and look at, think about and look at, that I think speak to this question. And the first is found in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees, whose name Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. That's Luke 7, 36-38. Now, some things to know. This meal wasn't a private meal. People could come in and watch what went on. See, they didn't have podcasts back then, and if you wanted to hear an interesting conversation, this is how you did it. 
So Jesus was having a meal at a Pharisee's house where strangers could drop in and listen, and that was totally normal. But a woman, who is likely a prostitute, crashing a party at a religious guy's house and causing a scene with the guest in the middle of a meal, that was not normal at all. Let's read on. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So Simon the Pharisee gets in a bit of a huff. He judges the woman and Jesus by association. He writes them off. Read on. Jesus, in verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Simon answers Jesus a bit begrudgingly. I don't think he likes where this is going. Verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. And you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There is a lot going on here. And one commentator puts it like this. Though Simon had invited Jesus to his home, he had not given him the treatment due to an honored guest. It would have been expected that the host would have provided water for his guest's feet. Jesus had not received this courtesy, but he had his feet washed with the woman's tears. And similarly, in place of the kiss of welcome that might have been expected from the host... He had received kisses on his feet. And finally, whereas Simon had omitted to anoint Jesus' head with olive oil, the woman had anointed his feet with perfume. Simon the Pharisee thought he saw things clearly. He saw this woman as a sinner, unworthy to even be in his house. And he saw Jesus as an ignorant man who obviously wasn't a prophet and who was proving to be unworthy of his dinner invitation and definitely not worthy of his religious devotion. He thinks clearly... Jesus doesn't know what's going on here. But Jesus knew the sins of that woman. Verse 47 says they were many. And the woman only knew the grace of Jesus, and it motivated her to her expression of love. The woman's love didn't earn her forgiveness. Instead, her act of love was a proper and fitting response to the forgiveness she had already received, as verse 47 makes clear. Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. If she weren't forgiven, she wouldn't have poured out her tears and her perfume and her affection. So Simon looked at the woman and saw sinner. But Jesus looked at the woman and saw forgiven, motivated to love. The point Jesus made in the parable, in his parable, is this. Clearly, Simon the Pharisee was the one who didn't see things clearly because he didn't see himself clearly. Simon loved little because he was forgiven little. That's the first story I want us to keep in mind. Here's the second. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 
verses 38 to 42. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come here and help me. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. It's Luke 10, 38-42. So Martha welcomes Jesus, and she has all these big plans for when Jesus is there. And she's swamped in her preparations. And she wants to honor her guests with a big meal. And she's a bit choked that her sister is just sitting there with Jesus and the others. She's being lazy, not helping with the big dinner. And so she tries to get Jesus on her side and get her sister Mary's butt in gear. Uh, But Jesus knows that Mary understands something that Martha has missed. Jesus points out, Martha, you're upset and worried over details. There's only one thing here worth being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it. Jesus would rather have someone listening to him teach and obeying what he says than someone distracted away from him by the big feast they're preparing for him in his honor. So here we are. Two separate parties. Two separate separate dinner parties. Two different extremes of getting it wrong. We have Simon the Pharisee who loves little and judges much and fails to honor Jesus at his table. We have Martha, the friend of Jesus, so eager to honor Jesus at her table that she fails to honor him with her attention. Simon doesn't really want to honor Jesus, and Martha really wants to honor Jesus, and both of them miss the mark. In both stories, there is someone who gets it really wrong. One was all stillness, that was Simon, and one was all action, and that was Martha, and what they got wrong was the same. Both are preoccupied with their own stuff and missed Jesus. In both stories, there is someone who gets it really right. One was all action, the woman, and one was all stillness, Mary. But what they got right was the same. They desired the grace of Jesus above anything else, and love for Jesus compelled them to a response appropriate to the situation they found themselves in. People can be busy or still and miss out on what Jesus desires for them. People can be busy or still And it's exactly what Jesus desires for them. Sometimes in scripture, it looks like it's teaching contrary things. But it's actually teaching two tensions that need to be held together. It isn't inherently right or wrong to be busy. And it isn't inherently right or wrong to be still. Honoring Jesus will at times call for a flurry of activity. And in other times, it will require a quiet stillness. And in both cases, we get it right if Jesus is the focus. And this brings us back to my original question. How do we get better at being a church where people want to take their next steps towards Jesus and want to help others to do the same? By desiring the grace of Jesus above anything else and allowing our love of Jesus to compel us to an appropriate response to the situation we find ourselves in. Good gathered culture stems from good individual culture. Personally, do you desire Jesus? Do you act on this desire? Do you seek the opportunity to learn from God's word? Are you hungry and thirsty for righteousness in your life?
as we gather, aka as we do life together by any means possible, whether that's in-person worship services or a text message conversation, anytime you're with the others, how do you contribute to our church community in a way that helps others know they matter to you and they matter to Jesus? How does your worship of Jesus draw others to Jesus? How do you model the love of Jesus to those who don't know him? How do you serve others? Are you leading others where it is appropriate for you to lead and following the leadership of others? That's where healthy church culture starts, with you desiring Jesus and letting your love for Jesus compel you to respond appropriately to him in whatever situation you find yourselves in, especially in these strange COVID days, but all of the time. Don't be like Simon the Pharisee, content to do nothing, justified by your comfortable and safe religion. Don't be like Martha, the friend of Jesus, so preoccupied with your own plans on how to honor Jesus that you miss Jesus altogether. Instead, be like the woman who has forgiven much and loved Jesus more than anything, and be like Mary, who didn't want to miss her chance to be with Jesus. These days, being a church isn't easy. The encouragement we used to get from seeing 450 people regularly isn't really available in the same way. But if we are a church of individuals that desire Jesus, the culture we create together will motivate people to be formed and reformed and made more like Jesus. And that will permeate all of our activities, COVID-restricted or not. So as a church, why do we do what we do? The answer must be, we do what we do because we desire Jesus. We desire to know him and to love him and to live in response to him. And any, any, other, any other answer will just straight up miss the mark. How do we become a church where people desire to take their next steps towards Jesus and want to help others do the same? Well, when a group of gathered believers is focused on Jesus, they become positive, empowering, inviting, and motivating They help us to understand and encounter Jesus and build our desire to be more like him. They propel us forward in our spiritual growth. Rather than forcing or manipulating or inducing guilt in us, our deepening roots in Christ create an insatiable desire to be like him. And together as the Spirit works in us, Christ-centered gathered group culture is a propeller that generates momentum for individuals to move forward through the discipleship river. And that comes from our Fellowship Discipleship Handbook. I'm thankful to be a part of a church where people spend serious time considering how to spur each other on towards love and good works, looking for the best way to do it. Individuals who live their faith loudly so others can be encouraged. Ministry leaders who are developing evangelism strategies and and leading journey groups and small group leaders who are doing life with people in their groups and Bible study leaders helping people to dig into the word of God deeper, you know, all of them ministering to the body of Christ with their gifts. And I'm thankful that even when we can't meet together in person, people haven't given up finding ways to meet together and gather. Even when we can't actually gather, we are still gathered. We are still a church. We are still that. Now, a year after my awful soccer experience, I joined a different team with three or four of my best friends, with a solid coach, and with some real solid soccer players. And we made it all the way to city finals. And that team was there to play. And so was I. I wasn't the best soccer player, but the longer I was on the team, the better I got at it. 
And I went from a, a reluctant goalkeeper to an enthusiastic midfielder. And at the end of that year, my coach said in front of everyone, the whole team, he said that I was the person most willing to put myself in harm's way for the good of the team, to dive in front of a hard kick or slide tackle the big guy or get in front of the guy who, you know, most people gave a lot of space to. What a difference a year it makes. Uh, what a difference that team made. Now imagine a church that's like that soccer team, a church made up of individuals that desire Jesus above all else. No restrictions or systems or programs or buildings will ever stifle that church. The culture of that church that that church creates will only motivate people to desire Jesus more. What would likely happen to a disciple of a church like that? Let's be that church. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, we pray that each of us individually we desire you first and foremost in everything in our lives. We pray that we wouldn't be like Simon the Pharisee, content in our own judgments, forgiven little and loving little. Give us an awareness of just how much your forgiveness has saved us. Give us an awareness of, of your love in our lives so that we can desire you and we can love you in all aspects of our lives. Help us not to be like, like Martha, so concerned with how to properly get it all done perfectly and right that we actually miss you in our midst. Um, it's a temptation, and I pray that you would keep us away from that. Help us not to just get busy. Help us to just desire you and sit with you and learn from you. And Lord, I pray that as you're helping us as individuals to do that, um, I pray that when we gather in whatever way we can these days, whether it's on Zoom or in a living room with our family, or giving a call to a family, or, or a text message to somebody, or whatever. Lord, help us to realize that in those moments, we are being the church. Even though we can't gather in this sanctuary, we are still gathered. We are still your church, and we are still called to be your church. I pray that our good individual culture of, of loving you first and following you, uh, I pray that we would bring that to our gathered culture. Lord, give us courage to speak up about what you're doing in our lives to one another so that we can be encouraged. I pray that, um, you know, this church would continue that trajectory of being a place that inspires disciples to take their next best step. I pray that you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.